Hello, everybody. Welcome to London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs once again. Mike is traveling with the London Knights. They lost in Barrie last night. They play in Sudbury tonight. They'll be in North Bay on Sunday. You can hear the game on 980 CFPL tonight, starting at 6.30 with the pregame. Puck drops at 7.05. With Mike away, we've got a busy show for you today. We had a busy one yesterday, another busy one today. We'll be talking to Max Eisen in a few moments. He's a uh, Holocaust survivor. He'll be speaking in London on Monday. We'll talk to him. Uh, In case you haven't noticed, it's pretty cold outside. We'll be talking about the cold conditions with the health unit and what you can do to uh, stay warm and stay safe. We'll talk about smoking. There's a new policy by London Police that's creating some waves. We'll talk about that. We'll get some reaction to yesterday's announcement on tuition and OSAP by the Ontario government. And we'll talk about a new study from Western that looked at loneliness that had some results that you might find surprising. That and a whole lot more on the program today. Up first, in the news, you may have uh, seen uh, the sad news that uh, Peppa Livingstone, a Londoner who escaped the Holocaust, uh, has died. She uh, passed away on Sunday at the age of 94. She is being remembered as a passionate and community-driven person who spent her life teaching the value of tolerance. She had ties to hundreds of children saved from the Nazis by the so-called British Schindler. She lived a full life. We're better for it. We're better to hear and learn from her experiences. And it's with that in mind that I mentioned that on Monday at the London Jewish Community Center, Max Eisen, a fellow Holocaust survivor and a renowned educator, will be honored. He will also be speaking. I'm happy to say he joins us on the line now. Uh, Max, I appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. Hi, right, Max, can you hear me? I can hear you well. Can Excellent. you hear me? I can. I appreciate okay. you uh, taking some time for us today. Sure. What's the message you, you hope to pass along uh, when you uh, do speeches like the one you're going to give on Monday? Well, the message, uh, first of all, it's um, uh, January the 27th will mark the liberation of um, Auschwitz by the Red Army 74 years ago, January the 27th. And... Um, I was in Auschwitz, and uh, I was not liberated by the Russian uh, army because on January the 12th, tens of thousands of slave laborers were moved by SS units, and uh, it took us uh, 13 days to arrive in Austria, and I was liberated on May the 6th, 1945. So uh, I can remember the days and the events it's those are seared in my mind and my heart, and uh, I would say that never again must we allow anything like this to happen. Um, what happened to Jewish people in uh, continental Europe, and it happened because there were the perpetrators, the collaborators, there were many bystanders. Bad things happen when good people stand by and do nothing. And uh, I would say that, in essence, this is what happened in continental Europe. A, um, a Europe that is called the old cultured world of Europe, and yet these unbelievably horrible things that happened. Uh, the Jewish people, people of color, the Roma Sinta, um, gays and lesbians, 
Jehovah's Witnesses, anyone that did not fit in the mold of the supremacist master race was to be simply eliminated. Is it is it easy or is it difficult to talk about what happened at Auschwitz and, and share your experiences? Well, it is not easy to talk about it, but, you know, I'm spurred on. I've been um, a speaker for 32 years. I've covered this country from coast to coast and uh, been to Europe, and I've been on many of the March of the Living. With, I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of students, and I would have thought that I was liberated 74 years ago, that I arrived in this amazing free country of Canada, that I would never have to uh, feel a uh, angst of uh, hatred of Jews. And uh, unfortunately, it is very uh, obvious that it has arrived here, even in our Canada. And this just spurs me on to... Uh, do the most I can. You know, our years are sort of um, running out. We're running out of time. I had about five survivor friends and colleagues last year who passed away. Many of them were speakers. So um, I feel that we need to educate as many students, of course, and the public at large. And I think this is very important that they need to know because the facts are that many people, a big percentage of people, didn't even know that there was a Holocaust. Um, so, and this is shocking for us survivors. And for us to see this, it recalls, you know, I recall a being a demonized, dehumanized, uh, the lowest of the lowest is how we were treated. And I would never want anybody to, to experience those terrible years. So um, this just spurs me on to keep talking and talking for as long as I can. Well, I, I thank you for talking because I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to speak. And the only reason I asked why it's easier or difficult just because over time, whether it's a, for some, it's, it's a mechanism to help cope. And uh, we, we need to hear from people like you. Well, uh, I was in London, I think it was in November. So, uh, and I was talking to students at the Jewish Community Center, two days in a row, 450 students uh, in the morning, 450 students in the afternoon, two days in a row, I think that covered about 1,800 students. And uh, the question everybody's asking, what will happen when the survivors are no longer here? Who will pick up the ball and carry the torch? And uh, so this is what we are all about, survivors. Um, I have written my memoirs. My book has been published in 2016, and it is a uh, historical document. And um, I try to put it down uh, on paper, and uh, I know that some schools are using it as a curriculum to teach the Holocaust. So, um, and I always tell my crowd, the people that I spoke to, I tell them that those that heard the witness are the next witnesses. They need to carry on and pass on uh, the history of what happened during the Holocaust, or in Hebrew we say Shoah, which means a catastrophe. So I hope that uh, this book is an eye-opener. And by the way, my book is on Canada Reads right now. And um, 
it's just amazing the comments I'm getting on emails and uh, by telephone and so on. So, um, unfortunately, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Unfortunately, you know, hatred, racism uh, is still a part of our life, still in Canada. Are we doing a better job of standing up to it uh, over the years you've been speaking, or do you, is it still something we struggle with? Well, you know, I often feel it's one step forward and two steps back. Uh, um, there are many things that are happening there. You, Holocaust survivors find Sostikas painted on their doors in Toronto. Um, last July, um, my face is on a poster beside a synagogue in Toronto, and the message is that the Jewish community uh, supports Holocaust education. So I had a call from somebody in July, I believe it was the 21st, that my picture had a uh, word painted on it. Uh, my picture was defaced, and the word said Achtung, a German word, Achtung means attention. And that was a shocking thing, because how many people would know, speak German, first of all? How many people would just look at it and they would say, well, it really it's doesn't really mean anything. But to me, that word Achtung means an awful lot. And it was declared as a hate crime. And to me, this is a terrorist act. It is to terrorize us. And, you know, it is a message. Not only this is not a Jewish problem, it is a problem for the entire community. And um, I had amazing support and feedback from a lot of people from the non-Jewish community, as I said, this is everybody's business. And I say that the only way we can combat this, everybody needs to stand up and say, you cannot do this in my school, in our city, in our town, in our country. So uh, <clears throat> everybody needs to understand, because it starts with words, as it started in Nazi Germany, words. And it ended in terrible places, in the killing fields, where Jews by the millions were shot by bullets, by special uh, killing units of the SS, and then gassed in gas chambers in large numbers at a time, including my family. So uh, it is a sign, if it's not caught in the bud, it spreads and it will, uh, our way of life can disappear. And this is what happened in Nazi Germany. It was not... Everybody bought it. Everybody bought the propaganda. People were brainwashed and they got on board. And um, it's very difficult to stop. And as we know that the entire world had to uh, go to Europe to fight this terrible disease, Canadian young people, by the thousands, were loaded onto ships and sent over the stormy Atlantic with U-boats to fight this terrible disease. So we need to fight this as soon as it appears. Because uh, I, we say that Jews are the canary in the mine. Uh, so uh, everybody needs to take heed of this and um, stand together. And I always tell students at school, um, after I finish my speech, that we must guard this freedom that we have. There is no freedom without responsibility. And um, the Canadian anthem is played in the school every morning. 
And I tell them the words, Canada, glorious and free, we stand on guard for thee. And we need to guard this freedom that uh, we have with our very lives. Max Eisen, I uh, welcome you to to London on Monday, and I thank you for uh, speaking and sharing your story. Thank you. Okay, Devin. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is is, uh, Max Eisen. He's a Holocaust survivor. We'll be speaking at the London Jewish Community Centre on Monday at 7 o'clock. The event is free to the public, and all are welcome to attend. We need to pause when we come back. More of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Cold weather alert has been issued. It's the first of the winter season uh, for London. Temperatures expected to dip uh, around uh, nearly uh, minus 17 degrees Saturday night, minus 21 uh, degrees overnight Sunday. So it's going to be chilly. We've got snow coming as well. You will want to stay inside. To talk about the cold weather alert, we're joined by Randy Walker from the Health Unit. Uh, thanks for your time today. Good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, looking like it's going to be a pretty cold weekend. We've uh, had plenty of uh, uh, lead up to this. Uh, there have been a lot of indications it was going to be quite cold, but uh, it's looking like this is going to be uh, by far the uh, the coldest uh, weekend we've had uh, uh, for winter so far. It is definitely going to be nasty. What should uh, people be uh, be knowing with uh, the mercury expected to uh, drop uh, as far as we're expecting here? Well, number one, cold weather like this, if you're exposed to it uh, unprotected or for long durations, uh, can be lethal. It uh, has a significant risk to health across the board. Um, two, possibly three consecutive days of, uh, of cold weather that breach our, uh, our cold alert threshold uh, for issuing alerts um, is in play. Uh, to make it worse, not only is the ambient temperature cold, uh, but the amount of wind and the amount of snow that's going to be in play is going to exacerbate all that. The wind chill is going to be significant along that uh, perspective, um, as is the amount of snow relative to travel. Uh, with snow, a lot of people will be out playing in it or, or shoveling it. Um, that will expose them to the moisture not only from the melting of snow that's on their body and around them, but also the sweat associated with it, which even further exacerbates the risk. So it's very important that we get messages out like this so that people can proactively defend themselves and, more importantly, again, those that are unable to defend themselves, like young children or the infirmed or the elderly, et cetera. How quickly could something like uh, hypothermia or frostbite uh, kick in with uh, temperatures like we're going to see this weekend? Well, the actual temperature, frostbite is something that's progressive, freezing of the skin. Um, it's, uh, It's... it's a serious condition. Um, hypothermia is the same thing. Hypothermia is the whole body cooling down, an internal drop in temperature, uh, where frostbite is something that's local and usually associated with exposed skin. Um, so if you cover your skin um, with multiple layers of clothing, like Canadians are prone to do, um, then and protect it from the wind, uh, frostbite should be, be kept at bay. The fingertips the face, the back of the neck, these are places that are seldom covered. So take advantage of the fact that proactively you know that it's dangerous, especially with the winds we expect this weekend, um, because the wind will make the probability of frostbite significantly greater. Um, 
So covering your face with a belt-type mask or a scarf, making sure the back of your neck and your head is covered appropriately with appropriate hat. Hood's a perfect idea along that line. Um, again, be wary of sweating in these circumstances because even a casual breeze um, in cold background temperatures can really cause problems. The hypothermia is more prolonged exposure um, for somebody that's not prepared to be out in that cold. So it is a problem along that line. Um, the, but again, if you, if you dress in layers, the layers are going to give you multiple um, insulation with the outermost layer, both resistance against moisture, wet snow, or possibly rain or blowing slush from the, you know, the moisture off the uh, salted roads, this type of thing. Um, that's going to protect you extremely well. Again, making sure the children or, or, or you know, the other people that need a little bit of assistance are dressed accordingly. Um, temper your time, so go out until you start feeling the chill, and if you start noticing everybody's going to have red faces and this type of stuff, when you see, when you start to see that, then encourage people to come in, take off the excess, excessive clothes, warm up, you know, nice warm chocolate or something like this, and then go back out. If you pace yourself, you should be able to enjoy the weather, um, even though the wind and the blowing snow is going to be, you know. The, uh, the sweating, I think, is an interesting point just because, I've heard a lot of people mention, you know, this is one of those weekends where it's a good weekend to go tobogganing. We're going to get some snow. People being anxious for more of a, a robust winter, and people want to take advantage of that. But you got to be careful when it uh, gets this cold. Absolutely. And, and, again, if you prepare appropriately by dressing appropriately, monitor your time, monitoring the people that you're with. So pay attention. You don't notice in yourself when you're feeling terribly cold. But people will notice that you start to slur your speech or you're looking a little bit uh, um, a little bit redder than normal. And even a lot of times if you're out too long like that, you don't get that redness. Your skin actually starts to get pale. That's, that's danger signs. These are, these are the types of signs that you should seek medical attention. But if you prepare yourself accordingly and say, we're going to go out for a little while, we're going to take some breaks, we're going to you know, check out each other, you, know, you can have a lot of fun. Um, so there's no reason that uh, with proper preparation and, and pro proper planning that everybody should be able to definitely survive the weekend and hopefully enjoy it to the max. Are there times when maybe we're maybe less cautious than others when we should be? I wonder if people might be a bit more cautious this weekend just because there's been a lot of lead-up to the weather that's coming. Sometimes when it comes quickly, maybe we're not prepared in advance for the type of weather we're going to be experiencing. Devin, you mentioned earlier that people get excited when there's a possibility of having, this is a tremendously powerful draw to the ski hills and the toboggan hills because there's going to be a lot of snow and it's going to be a beautiful white snow. Um, travel back and forth might be a little bit problematic. that will put people on guard. But those people that are not worried about that, the dangers associated with traveling on the roads or even walking on sidewalks is something to be uh, you know, plan for in advance as opposed to experience when it's too late. Um, but it's it's the draw that you want to take advantage of these resources when it comes you know, available. So ski hills are going to love people to show up. They're going to be prepared for it. But if you do go skiing, be prepared. The chalets are there to serve you the hot drinks, to get you out of the weather, to let you pace yourself so that you're enjoying it. Take full advantage of that. Don't assume that you can just stay out all day, get as many runs in as you can. You'll pay the price, and so will those people that are with you. 
Uh, people will be distracted by the fun, will be distracted by the, the exuberancy, the socializing associated with it, especially in, in you know, the, even the party atmosphere where you might go in for a few drinks, alcoholic beverages and things like this. That will exacerbate your ability to keep yourself warm and recover from that. So be very careful of what you're consuming and how you're consuming it, um, how often you're consuming it, this type of stuff. Um, and it's, 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 it's common sense that's not so common, especially when we're having fun. Is this the first uh, cold weather alert of the season, do you know? The health unit uh, issued a uh, heads-up warning um, a week ago uh, because we came damn close to what we describe as our thresholds where, where this is a known temperature situation where the vulnerable population that we've identified in the greater Millicent County area will be exposed to known risks to their health. Um, it's, it's a vulnerable threshold at that point. The average person that's healthy, that is in good shape, won't be exposed like the vulnerable are. Uh, they can suffer the same consequences if they're exposed to something that, that they're not prepared for. But that threshold is to protect those that are more likely not able to protect themselves by taking advantage of informing those that can so they can offer the assistance. But this weekend, it's going to affect everybody. I think the entire population is vulnerable at temperatures and wind chill factors that we'll be experiencing this weekend. Um, and it's an, an issue that uh, uh, everything in moderation, and you'll do fine. Okay, Randy, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. No problem. Anytime. Thanks okay. for the opportunity. That is uh, Randy Walker with the uh, Middlesex London Health Unit. We need to pause when we come back. More of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike's away with the London Knights. I want to talk about smoking for the next little while in a couple of different ways. We'll talk about an interesting new study on marijuana that just came out, specifically its impact on the brains of those 14 and younger. Before we do that, though, January 20th to the 26th is National Non-Smoking Week. As you may or may not be aware, Canada has a goal of getting down to a smoking rate of 5% by 2035. We're currently at 16%. To talk about this and more, we're joined by Rob Cunningham from the Canadian Cancer Society. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much, Devin. Great to be with you. With uh, National Non-Smoking Week ahead, I uh, know that uh, Health Canada has a goal of uh, getting our smoking rate down to 5% by 2035. How are we uh, doing on that? Well, uh, we've made progress, certainly. Um, We have smoking in 2017 at 16% of Canadians. In 1965, it was 50%, including 61% of men. We've made a lot of progress, uh, but clearly we still have more than 5 million Canadians who smoke. It's still the leading preventable disease and death in Canada. It causes 30% of all cancer deaths. We have a lot of work that remains to be done, Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of measures that we can do at the federal and provincial levels. I don't know if you have this information handy, but do you know how our smoking rate might compare to other countries? Um, among uh, uh, developed countries, Canada is comparable to some that have made a lot of progress. Okay. Uh, so in terms of Australia, uh, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, um, in, there are some countries where the rates of women are really low. They've never really gotten beyond uh, 1 or 2 or 3%. So as an average, those countries, there are some countries that are lower than Canada. Um, and there are um, 
there's a, a whole bunch of countries, especially in low and middle income countries, uh, you know, in Asia and so on, where, and, uh, where, the, where smoking rates are much higher than in Canada. Uh, so, um, you know, we've, but we have to remember Canada started off really high. So it's taken us a long time because of nicotine addiction. Unfortunately, the decreases are much slower than we would have liked. From where we were all those years ago to where we are now, what have been some of the most successful ways to get people to quit smoking? Well, I think it's been a comprehensive set of measures of legislation and taxation and public education and cessation programs. Um, And it's not just one thing. Uh, You know, certainly the awareness of the health effects has been a great motivator. It's been key to changing everything. Um, And, and, you know, we also having the high taxes is probably the factor that's had the single most impact. But we have smoke-free spaces. Uh, in a way that we didn't have. We have sales to minors laws. We have controls on advertising. We have increasingly larger uh, warnings on cigarette packages with those pictures. Um, you can no longer sell tobacco in pharmacies, on u- university campuses. Uh, we've now banned menthol cigarettes. Uh, we've banned certain flavored other tobacco products. Um, uh, so we've done a, a series of things, but uh, there's a lot that we haven't done yet. I think it's interesting, and this doesn't necessarily just apply to, you know, cigarettes and smoking, that we can have information uh, available about, you know, a certain uh, product or an activity that could be hazardous to our health, and we uh, acknowledge that and continue to consume it or do it regardless. But when the financial component comes into play, that's when you start to see some change. I just think that's an interesting characteristic, characteristic about humans. I agree with you. And, you know, and especially here we have a product, most, the overwhelming majority of smokers begin as teens, um, and they don't, they think they're invincible. They think they may not be smoking, you know, five or ten years later, but because of nicotine addiction, uh, they are. And, uh, you know, and, and some people think that the health effects are not going to happen, happen to them, you know, because they're invincible and so on, and it happens to other people. And, and I, I agree with you, that financial impact can resonate with a lot of people. So when those taxes have gone up, it, it really has made a difference. Plain packaging, I know, is something that's been discussed uh, for many years in this country, and it, we, we're kind of behind uh, some other countries on that. What sort of impact do you think that's going to have? I think it's going to help a lot. And you're right, there's about a dozen countries now that have adopted this measure. Canada is joining the international momentum. Um, you know, we commend Health Minister uh, Jeanette Petitpas taylor uh, for the draft regulations that have been brought forward. They are the best in the world. Uh, in terms of plain packaging regulations. Uh, we we're waiting for the final regulations and, then, and for them to appear in store shelves. Um, the package should not be a mini billboard uh, that makes cigarettes more attractive. And it's a type of advertisement. And especially for kids who hold that pack, it's an endorsement for their peers. Um, and you know, it's the most important type of marketing. And this will make cigarettes less attractive. Uh, the evidence is very good. Uh, in terms of the studies. Um, and the fact that the tobacco industry has opposed it so much is a very good indication of just how important the measure is. One thing that um, Jeanette Petipat-Taylor has uh, announced and is consulting on is to uh, require warning on individual cigarettes. Uh, this is an innovative measure that would be the first in the world in terms of Canada to do that. So right on that cigarette, like where the butt is, you, know, you might have a message about cancer or every cigarette is doing you damage and so on. Um, we have 27 billion cigarettes sold each year in Canada. Uh, if every, you know, every, when you're out there looking at that cigarette uh, during your smoke break, it, it's going to help. And also it's going to help for contraband because we'll have an indication on every cigarette whether it's intended for the legitimate community market or not. Um, but as soon as we can have plain packaging on store shelves, the better.
It's interesting uh, time because, you know, we've made these uh, reductions in the smoking rate. Uh, we've got plain packaging coming in, but we've also, you know, got e-cigarettes are out there now. We just legalized marijuana. Those seem to kind of almost run counter to all the efforts to reduce the smoking rate. Um, so uh, e-cigarettes are a really important issue, and we're really concerned by the increase in teens uh, and high school students using these products. Um, there's a big jump uh, in Canada. If we look by the, you know, for the 2014-15 school year, two years later to the 2016-17 school year, uh, among students grades 10 to 12, uh, the increase went from 9% uh, to uh, 15% um, for e-cigarettes. And it's indication in 2018 that it's increased substantially more. And nicotine is addictive. Um, kids should not be using these. We don't, uh, having made the progress that we have, to reduce youth smoking. We don't want to see a growth in that. Um, and in Ontario, uh, Ontario is one of eight provinces that has e-cigarette legislation. The others haven't got theirs adopted yet. Um, but the Ontario government is allowing um, advertising for e-cigarettes in convenience stores um, near the chocolate bars and the candy, and that's a problem. Um, and we see in other uh, provinces they don't allow that. So that would be a remedy the Health Minister Christiane could do to help protect kids and reduce e-cigarettes here in Ontario. Yeah, I mean, like e-cigarettes, there's all sorts of flavors. I mean, it's it's just really primed to gear towards younger users. It's really attractive to um, to kids. And similarly, federally, there's a role the federal government can play, and they can control um, e-cigarettes as well uh, by uh, further controlling advertising beyond the store level. Um, really what we should do also um, is to have a minimum age of 21 for both tobacco and cigarettes. There's now six U.S. states that have done it, many major cities, including Chicago and New York City. Um, there should also be um, uh, New York State has just uh, had the governor signal that, uh, Governor Cuomo, that he would like to do that in New York State in, in pending legislation. And if we could do that, that would reduce use by, uh, by youth. And similarly, um, we should no longer sell e-cigarettes in convenience stores. Uh, they should be in adult-only premises, such as the specialty vape shops. The current situation is not working. Kids are getting e-cigarettes uh, from convenience stores. And we're hearing all of these stories in high schools about how kids are using these in the bathroom at high school. And, you know, where smoking in the bathroom was from a generation ago. So we have a really uh, significant emerging problem. Rob, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Devin, thank you very much. My pleasure. That's Rob Cunningham from the Canadian Cancer Society. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You are listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to continue our smoking theme, but focus entirely on marijuana. New studies suggest that even small amounts of pot use in teens, we're talking one or two joints before the age of 15, could be associated with significant changes in brain development. The research looked at 46 teens aged 14 or younger who had smoked the equivalent of one or two joints in their lifetimes. Hugh Garvan is the study's lead author. He's a professor and psychiatrist at the University of Vermont. Joins us now. Thanks for your time today. You're very welcome. I thought this study was uh, quite interesting, especially since uh, Canada just legalized uh, marijuana. Uh, what made you want to uh, look into this? 
Yeah, um, we were particularly interested in looking at whether or not there were any effects of light cannabis exposure. So most people who are interested in studying whether or not cannabis does have any effects on, let's say, brain function or on cognition, I think would, you know, quite reasonably recruit individuals who've used lots, you know, with the expectation that you'll see your biggest effects there. But there is some literature uh, based on animal models that even a single exposure to cannabis might have effects on brain. So we were curious to see, is it possible if there are any changes that might arise from the very first uses? And that's why in this study we, rec uh, we identified a sample of kids who reported just one or two joints in their lifetime. Seems like uh, the, the marijuana field is one area that's kind of rich for you know, study and research just because there hasn't been a lot over the years. And uh, obviously that's starting to change now. But for the longest time, uh, there, we didn't uh, have a whole lot of research to look to. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true, and it is reasonable as well that there should be more and more research because uh, you know the the cannabis itself changes. You know, joints are changing with regards to the potency. You know, the the amount of THC versus cannabidiol has changed over the years. One of the challenges too in the literature is that it's quite um, um, ambiguous as to what conclusions to draw, um, and part of the problem. You know, there's lots of issues that's always difficult to determine, you know, any kind of causal relationship between cannabis use and any effects one might see. Um, one of the challenges is that, you know, very often if you recruit a sample of cannabis users and compare them to a comparison group, you know, very often there are differences in maybe, you know, socioeconomic status or in alcohol or nicotine that the cannabis users might have used more of. So that confounds the, the studies. One of the, the nice things we were fortunate in this study that we've just reported, in addition to identifying the 46 kids who reported one or two joints, we were able to recruit sort of a match sample, so another 46 who were matched on uh, alcohol use, nicotine use, socioeconomic status, and IQ measures, uh, as well as you know age and sex and even puberty status, given that these kids are 14. So a very fairly well-matched comparison uh, was enabled by this. What did you uh, think you might uh, get from this uh, study, and did it match the results? We really weren't sure what we would see. To be honest, it was quite exploratory. There is almost no research of this type done on, um, uh, done on such light exposures. Like I, I said earlier, most often people would study the heavier users. So we were very unsure, so it was quite exploratory. And to be honest, we were quite surprised when we run, ran the analysis to have seen, you know, as large an effect as we did see. That was going to be my next uh, question is, was there anything that surprised you? Yeah, just uh, like I said, the, the, the magnitude of the effects, um, you know, we thought maybe, maybe there might be some small differences. So what we did is, you know, we looked at gray matter volume, uh, so across the brain, comparing the, those kids who reported one or two uses against the matched comparison kids. And we found actually substantial brain regions that showed greater volumes in the cannabis-using kids. And what uh, was of interest and, you know, made us think that, okay, this might be a credible result is that the brain regions that show this effect are regions where cannabis tends to bind in the brain. So it you know, kind of adds some credibility to the possibility that this is due to the exposure to cannabis. What has been the response to uh, the study since you released it? There's been a lot of interest. I think you know, people uh, wouldn't have expected to see any effects uh, on this. A lot of people are curious to, you know, uh, to find out if there's any you know, cognitive or mental health deficits that might arise from it. Um, 
so yeah, I think there, it has generated a lot of interest. I think uh, just again because of the kind of surprising uh, level of it. One of the reasons I ask is this because one of the arguments I hear often in, in this country from proponents of marijuana is how safe it is, how beneficial it is. And my response isn't that it's the worst or to scaremonger, but there's just a lot we don't know. And I'm not saying it's it's the most damaging thing in the world, but, you know, we do have more studies showing, you know, there are, you know, consequences, especially for, you know, developing brains when there is uh, cannabis use. Yeah, I think it's it's a reasonable response, um, and we do need to be very cautious here because people people can get inflamed about this issue. There's you know quite a, a range of opinions. Some people think that cannabis is very very dangerous and should be you know not made available at all. A lot of people think you know quite the opposite that it's relatively benign. So you know in our uh, study, just to be to be clear, even though we do see these uh, differences in gray matter volume, we don't see you know large cognitive or mental health differences between the cannabis using kids and the the controls. Now again, perhaps we just haven't dug deep enough, but we are not seeing that these brain changes necessarily produce any functional consequences. So you know it may be the case that this observation is true, but not necessarily consequential. Um, I think though what adds you know interest to it is um, you know the I think even people who are you know uh, proponents of you know legalizing cannabis, I think everybody would essentially agree that maybe cannabis being available to you know adolescents and young adolescents is not a good idea. So when we do see these effects, I guess it does add to that anxiety. We know that the brain is going through a lot of changes early in adolescence. The cannabis receptors, this is the places in the brain where cannabis uh, has its effect, they actually increase substantially during puberty. So it's quite reasonable to have, you know, just concerns that cannabis at this early age may, you know, have possible detrimental effects on brain development. Is there anything you hope that this research could lead to? Um, well, I think one thing, uh, obviously we need to understand the mechanisms better. One thing that is striking, I think it's important, is that there are substantial individual differences. So, you know, most research of this type, you compare your cannabis-exposed kids to the comparison groups, you find a group difference. But it's important to note that there's a lot of uh, variation uh, so it is not the case that every single cannabis-using kid that we studied has, a, you know, an especially enlarged gray matter volume compared to the uh, controls. So kind of an important question for me is trying to identify, well, what might be the characteristics uh, that might make some more vulnerable or, you know, sensitive to these uh, uh, proposed effects of cannabis on the brain? So I think that's where we'd like to go further. It's uh, quite interesting. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're very, very welcome. Thank you. That is Hugh Garavan, lead author of a new study that found even small amounts of teenage cannabis use may be associated with significant changes in brain development. I think it's a relevant study. It's interesting, especially when you consider uh, the Ontario Student Drug Use Health Survey from 2017 that asked 11,000 students in grades 7 to 12 about their drug use. Nearly 1 in 10 ninth graders and 1 in 5 tenth graders reported having used cannabis in the past year. Uh, we need to pause. When we come back, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. In the second hour, we'll talk about a new policy by London Police that has uh, created some waves. We'll talk about 
Uh, well, we'll talk to some students with their reactions to uh, the decision by the uh, Ford government to reduce tuition and change OSAP rules. It's not maybe how you think. And we'll talk about loneliness. Are you lonely? There might be a genetic reason for that. That and a whole lot more in the second hour of the program. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike's traveling with the London Knights today. A lot of police have a tough job. A lot gets dumped on their lap. They're under increasing pressures to handle it all with uh, tighter and tighter budgets. And that is why they are looking for ways to offset costs. But one avenue they are looking at has raised some eyebrows. Police will soon charge a fee for their attendance at special events and parades where they provide security, where they conduct uh, traffic control. New policy starts June 1st, requires all special events that require a police presence to pay for the cost of bringing in off-duty police officers. This policy may not phase uh, some events, but for others it could have quite the impact. One of those events it could have an impact on is uh, Remembrance Day. Randy Warden is a veteran and a member of the Royal Canadian Legion's Remembrance Day Committee. He joins us now. Uh, Randy, I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Devin. Pleased to be with you. What was uh, your reaction when you heard about this uh, new policy? Well, the policy is not exactly unexpected. You know, uh, we are taxpayers ourselves, and we appreciate the uh, growing pressures on the police to try and uh, to balance their books. Uh, my background uh, is I've been very engaged as a volunteer with uh, chairing a number of significant events for the city over uh, the last years, probably 20 major events in all candidates, sesquicentennial. National Day of Honor, the Veterans Golf Tournament, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. And I've had to work with the police on all these events and understand and have paid our share to make sure that we have good police coverage when needed. Uh, it's a little bit different when we start talking about Remembrance Day. And what we've asked the police to do was to differentiate a, a community event from the sanctity of Remembrance Day. This was discussed at the London Police Services Board meeting yesterday. You spoke uh, near the end when they have a, a public session. What was the message you wanted to convey? The message that we wanted to convey is that Remembrance Day is not something that we want to be carried by sponsors, whereas sponsors will bring their own expectations. We're not. It, it, Remembrance Day is to remember our fallen. 116,000 Canadians since Confederation that have given their lives so we can enjoy the freedoms that we do today. And Remembrance Day is that opportunity without banners, sponsor banners around the back and everything else that we just stop and pause and remember those fallen. There is a sanctity to this day that should not be let go. As a hypothetical, if there were to be no exemptions for anyone, what impact would that have for Remembrance Day and the parade and everything that happens on November the 11th? Well, I prefer not to speculate on that. Um, if the police were simply to choose not to come, uh, there are no revenue sources for Remembrance Day. We do not solicit sponsors. Uh, the only revenue that we that we endeavor is the Poppy Fund that everyone knows about, and, and we thank the community for support of the Poppy Fund. 
But if we were to use the revenues of the Poppy Fund to start supporting the police, that is money that is coming out of the Veterans Care Program at Parkwood Hospital and other good veteran programs. Is that what we want? That's the question we need to ask. Do you think your message uh, yesterday was heard? Yes, I do. Um, I, I, I would like to put faith in the police. The police uh, have many of their officers that have served in the forces. Uh, there was one or two that were in that room uh, yesterday in police uniform. And, uh, of course, I do believe in my heart the police get it. Uh, what we're hoping is that they can find a way to, to uh, find a way to balance their books without it being uh, infringing on events or, or things, things like Remembrance Day. Um, and I think it's doable. I think we just need to find a way to do it. I don't want to paint uh, the police as the bad guy. I, n- I know that's not something you've done. I can certainly appreciate the the position they're in with the requests they're getting, and it's increasing uh, the pressure that puts on their resources. Uh, but I can certainly see where you know the veterans are coming from as well. It feels like this is a situation where we can come to a, uh, you know a solution here. It is my belief that that's entirely doable. What is uh, the next step uh, for for you? Well, we've been uh, we've been asked uh, by the police uh, to uh, let them consider our our, our uh, position that was presented yesterday, and that they will come back to us, and we will sit and and hear what they have to say before we choose to uh, uh, how else we might go about uh, pursuing this. Uh, just as, as another hypothetical, do you know how much it might cost for? Uh, security and traffic control for Remembrance Day, or has that ever been calculated? It's not been calculated, but I do have experience working with the police on on, on other significant events. Uh, to close off Wellington and Dundas streets for the parade, it's uh, there's a number of intersections, and it is a draw on resources. We get that. Uh, so, so although it's not been costed out, I would not be surprised if it were in the in the four thousand dollar range, perhaps even five thousand dollars. We will uh, follow this with interest. Randy, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Devin. That is uh, Randy Warden. He is a uh, veteran and member of the Royal Canadian Legion's Remembrance Day Committee. Uh, you know, I, I get it. You know, I get where the, the, the police are coming from. And again, I'm not uh, painting the cops uh, as the bad guy in this at all. The police typically have to pick up with a lot of uh, that's left in terms of, you know, there's a, a funding cut here, there's a funding cut there. Who's going to deal with the, the fallout? Well, usually it's uh, London police and you see it in the way their the job has changed uh, for police officers over the years. The number of uh, mental health calls they deal with today as opposed to, uh, you know, five, ten years ago. And it's it's a different job. And so they have to pick up the pieces when there are funding cuts elsewhere. And eventually, when we have all the debates we have about, you know, the police budget, rubber's got to hit the road somewhere and you just can't continue to cut back and cut back and cut back and expect uh, nothing to change. So I I do hope there's a uh, solution for this. The only thing I would say is, well, I I certainly would 100% be in favor of an exemption for Remembrance Day and for the veterans. It's not a slippery slope 
argument per se. It's it's a it's it's slippery slope adjacent. How about that? Where it's you know then you say well you know how you know how does one event compare to another? I think what's different is you know veterans, as they should have a special status with Canadians. And so it's different than virtually any other special event we might have in the city. But I'm almost, you know, surprised it took uh, this long for this policy to be put in place because, again, there's just so much that is put on uh, the uh, plate of uh, police these days that you know, at a certain point you've uh, you got to do something. And some of the numbers they were talking about, you know, they get over 100 requests a year, police do, for special events. And there can be at times where it diverts, you know, as many as 350 officers away from work they were doing otherwise. And so that's, you know, calls to service that they are not making otherwise. And so I, I get it. But it's uh, it's it's weird where you have a budget with the police that is just, you know, so bare bones. And then it gets into the whole conversation of future police budgets, which is another conversation, another segment altogether. But uh, that is going to be an interesting one for this city council. The next police budget, 2019 if I have my dates correct, is the year where uh, police officers in the city could get a raise where they would be on par with the average police officer in Ontario. This is part of the deal that was done by the previous contract. And it had a basically uh, an even or out clause in it, for lack of a more sophisticated term. And then you have the whole argument over what's going to be the next police budget and what's going to be the next contract and, and so on and, and so forth. But this will be discussed at the next uh, police services board meeting. It'll be in February. And I can't imagine there isn't some sort of a solution found here between uh, the police and between veterans just because it makes too much sense. It just makes uh, too much sense for if there are going to be an exemption, if there's going to be any group where there is an exemption, I think it's I think it's the veterans. I can understand there could be other groups that say, "Hey, what about us? We, you know, we are uh, a group that is." I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I'm sure you could name a bunch where they would be, you know, equally as deserving. But veterans in our society, and I, as I said, rightfully so, do have that special special status, and um, I don't want to see advertising. I don't want to see sponsorships on Remembrance Day. We will take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We continue on with the program. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We covered this yesterday on the show. Ontario has eliminated free tuition for low-income students as it attempts to trim a multi-billion dollar deficit, a move that 
despite an accompanying tuition fee cut, is being slammed as harmful to those it's purported to help. Training Colleges and Universities Minister Marilee Fullerton said the Ontario Student Assistance Plan uh, had those grants had become unsustainable and it was time to refocus the program to provide help to students in the most financial need. The previous Liberal government increased the number of grants and made it possible for low-income students to attend college or university free of cost, but... The Auditor General found last month the cost for the program jumped by 25% and warned it could grow to $2 billion annually by 2020-2021. The Tories are in the midst of uh, trying to trim a deficit they peg at $14.5 billion, though the Financial Accountability Officer says it's closer to $12 billion. Either way, under the Liberal OSAP program, families earning up to $175,000 could qualify for some funding, and that threshold is now reduced to $140,000. Low-income students could qualify for grants large enough to cover the full cost of tuition under the previous plan, but now a portion of the funding they receive will be a loan. Most of the grants will go to students whose families have an income less than $50,000. At the same time, tuition fees are being cut by 10%. The government has announced that it framed the moves as one that will help students in the greatest need, but students and critics said that is not the case. To talk about this, we are joined by Danny Chang. He's the president of the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance and a student at Western University. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. What was your reaction to the announcement by the uh, government yesterday? Yeah, so I mean... Yesterday was a definitely a big announcement, and I think there are three sort of big takeaways from it. So, I, I saw, you know, I would have to say my reaction is uh, a bit all over the place. Let me start with um, the tuition piece. And so, um, you know, I mean, Ontario has had the, the highest tuition uh, fees nationwide out of any province. Um, and so, I mean, um, the, the government's kind of uh, focus on high educational costs by reducing tuition fees, I think, is... Uh, is something that that we are pleased to see. Um, I, I guess next is though is the is the OSAP piece and the financial aid piece. And so, um, I mean, USA, our organization was uh, definitely a, a big part of the, the the changes that we saw to OSAP uh, a couple of years ago that that have um, made post secondary uh, more affordable and more accessible. Um, for students and families, and I and I think we we are definitely a bit disappointed to see the that sort of shift from a you know a, a primarily uh, needs based um, grants program uh, to more of a, a loans based program, and so definitely I think you know we we are concerned about the impact that this will have on students accessing post secondary education, students who are already in post secondary in. Uh, post-secondary education and how this is going to um, impact families. Um, and, and I guess the last piece is, you know, there was, there was the mention about students being able to choose about the fees that they pay for outside of tuition, um, ancillary fees. Um, and, and so I think definitely there are a lot of concerns across the board. I mean, uh, part of that would include student organizations such as, you know, student governments or student councils. Um, and I think what a lot of people have to realize is these student groups often administer um, some of the most beneficial things for students. So, so speaking, you know, kind of uh, from the lo- local London perspective and, and my role at uh, Western University, I mean, you know, the USC, the University Students Council at Western, we provide um, the LTC bus pass. And for, for each student, that's, you know, 
um, over $700 uh, worth of saving every year on their bus pass, something that students think are essential and are a huge benefit um, to the LTC and, and, and will, will um, are a big part of our making sure that um, the LTC is sustainable. So I think, you know what, we're going to definitely see impacts um, across the board and in municipalities as well with, uh, with what's to come forward. And, you know, because of that, we're, we're, we're looking forward to engaging on, with government about, you know, what these details look like and how we can um, do the best for students and do the best for families and do the best for the province. Did the government uh, talk to groups like yours or others uh, before these changes were made, you know? Um, so in November, we our organization uh, went to Queen's Park. We met with over 65 MPPs across the province, including the Premier and the Minister. Um, we discussed some of our concerns, you know, around affordability, about making sure that campuses are safe and healthy and, and making sure that students can be their best. And so um, we've had that conversation uh, in the last while, and, and this this announcement is something that, um, you know, like I said, with the tuition piece, uh, maybe something that you know that we uh, are are pleased to see, and in other places. However, we um, we definitely are uh, a bit disappointed with with the announcement. With uh, it's kind of a mixed bag, you know, as you, you mentioned, you know, with uh, tuition uh, being quite high in this province, people were hoping to see that uh, come down a little bit. Uh, but then on the flip side, you've got the, the OSAP changes. Uh, what do you make of the Auditor General uh, forecast that had it, uh, that program growing to as much as uh, $2 billion by 2020-21? That seems to be a, one of the reasons uh, the, the provincial government here is looking to cut that back as, as they look at the bigger picture with their, uh, their overall uh, budget. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest things that we should be taking away from uh, the the sort of changes that we saw in in OSAP, Devin, uh, between sort of that 2016-2017 school year to the 2017-2018 school year, is we saw a surge in uptake. And I think I think that is definitely something to consider in, in recognizing that you know financial aid is is based on need, and there is a need um, to be able to supplement the cost. Uh, of an education, and I think that should be something that's um, that's recognized across the board. That you know, uh, education is something that that is is essential to um, to students, to the to the economy, uh, to the future of our workforce. And I think um, seeing that surge, and definitely that was something that was stated in the Auditor General report, is that you know there definitely was a significant uptake, more so than expected, of course. Um, but recognizing that. That is that is born out of need. That's born out of people who um, are are needing to utilize financial aid uh, to to afford education. What has the reaction been amongst uh, students? You know, students, uh, you know, by and large, generally don't uh, pay a ton of attention to politics. But this mm. is something that you know uh, affects a lot of students. So I wonder if this is maybe something a little bit uh, different in terms of um, how closely students are paying attention to it. Yeah, Devin, I think a lot of students are paying attention to the content of this announcement. Um, you know, I think, I think uh, and, you know, you mentioned mixed bag earlier. I think there's different reactions to different pieces of what the government has announced. Um, so, so definitely, I think um, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be uh, impacted across the board from the changes in tuition to the changes in OSAP, as well as the changes in ancillary fees. Um, and and so yeah, so definitely, I think you know all eyes are kind of on the government right now from from the student side of things, and and hopefully you know we're 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 waiting to hear more details, um, and you know our organization hopes to be uh, a part of the conversation about what those details look like and how we can uh, ensure that you know students are um, you know are are able to kind of 
enter the 2019-2020 uh, school year and, and, and still have that fulsome student experience and that academic experience. Do you think with some of these changes with regards to uh, OSAP, that could restrict the the full degree of how much stu- some students want to do with their schooling where, you know, they've, they've gone, they want to go only, they, they want to go to a certain point, but they can only go so far or they might have to make a different kind of a, a choice. Could that restrict at all the, the type of schooling students uh, decide to pursue? Yeah, Devin, I, you know what, I think, um, this decision will definitely be a factor in in this government decision. Excuse me, will be a, a factor in in uh, people sort of uh, assessing their sort of educational paths. Um, and and I think a lot of people will have to um, sort of um, think about how this is going to impact them. And and I know that um, online uh, on the sort of OSAP homepage of the government, uh, we know that they've updated sort of the the calculator that you can use to figure out. Um, what your payment plan is going to look like, what your grant side of things is, is going to look like, what your loan side of things is going to look like. And I think first going there um, and, and getting more information is something that uh, would be beneficial for, for all uh, students or potential students. Um, and, and, and I think that's something that's going to um, be a consideration for sure. Finally, none of this uh, dealt with international students. They're in a, in a different bucket altogether. But is there any concern that they might have to make up some of the, the difference here with uh, the cut in tuition and anything else that might uh, come? Yeah, and Devin, you know what? Over the years um, in Ontario, we've seen you know provincial transfers to operating budgets um, having stalled. Um, and universities, uh, colleges have become more reliant on um, student fees as a source of their revenue. And, and a large part of that is international tuition. Um, and, you know, we believe that that's not a sustainable model and we're concerned about the impacts, um, you know, that, that whatever comes forward may have um, on not only the quality of education, but groups of our students, such as international students. Um, and and we're, we are concerned that, you know, they're going to bear these costs. And, and we definitely are hoping to engage with the government on, on how we can uh, address that. And, and we believe that, you know, international student tuition should be regulated. So, so we're, we're looking forward to continue that sort of conversation with the government. We will uh, follow this with interest. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Devin, thank you very much. Cheers. That's Danny Chang, president of the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance and a student at Western University. We need to pause. When we return more of London Live, this is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Do you ever get lonely? New study out of Western University has found loneliness is genetic for some people. Study found more than 750 pairs of adult twins shows that loneliness for some is more than just a feeling. It's actually part of a person's genetic makeup. However, there is some encouraging news. Environment still plays a much larger role in our feelings of connectedness than our own DNA. In short, people who feel lonely are not hardwired to remain that way. To talk about this, we're joined by researcher Dr. Julie aiken Shermer. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for your interest. Well, I thought it was a a pretty interesting uh, study. What made you want to look into this? Well, I think as a society, we're actually becoming lonelier. Um, I've been looking at the relationship between loneliness and personality, loneliness and humor, and I've been noticing that the younger individuals in my samples are actually scoring higher than some of my older 
people. And so I thought, okay, is there a genetic propensity for loneliness? And there's been some studies that have suggested that there is some degree of heritability, and we found also about 35% of the variance was due to genes. And so I thought, well, what's happening that's showing these individuals that are supposed to be so connected um, in terms of uh, the number of interactions that people are having on uh, through social media, they're, you know, they have hundreds of friends online. Why are they reporting loneliness? And I realized it's because of their connectivity with their electronic devices that they're further distancing themselves from having meaningful interactions with other people. And they're having basically one-way communication. They're reading about people, but they're not actually interacting with those people. And so I think that we actually are becoming a lonelier group and something we should be worried about because loneliness has been linked to depression and suicidal ideation. In terms of uh, doing this study with twins, why choose twins for the study? The only way you can tease apart whether or not a variable has a heritable component to it is by looking at how more similar are identical twins to paternal twins. And so if you have identical pair of twins that are more similar than their fraternal twins, which are also the same age but share only 50% of their genetic material, then you can say that there's a genetic factor that's taking place. So if we have, you know, a younger generation that is, uh, you know, maybe lonelier than the seniors, as this study shows, which certainly Mm -hmm. makes sense when you see, you know, how just how often people uh, connect on social media uh, and and on their phones. Could that lead to future generations if if there's a, you know, a potential genetic component to this picking up that trait? Oh, exactly. So you inherit your height potential from your parents. But if we had deprived you of nutrients, you would never have reached your maximum height potential. Conversely, if you have inherited a propensity for loneliness and we put you into an environment where you're not having enriched interactions with other people, you're more likely to demonstrate and feel the sense of loneliness. And that's a concern because we're when I look around the campus and I look at at younger individuals, I see them walking around with noise-canceling headphones on and they're texting or looking at their cell phones and they're not having a discourse or conversations with other people. And that concerns me because if they start feeling lonely, then they don't really have the social skills in order to make connections that they need to have. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in in one sense, we're more connected today than ever before in terms of Canadians talking to people in Japan or any other place. But we do it, you know, you know, in a solitary way. And we converse differently if we're, you know, typing a text to someone or writing an email or doing whatever, as opposed to if, you know, two people are just talking face to face. Oh, I agree. And it, it concerns me because... For example, I've been teaching for a long time, and when I used to walk into a classroom, I would have to ask the students to quiet down because they'd be talking to each other. Now I walk in and it's silent, and everybody's reading um, off their cell phones or they're checking something on their laptops, and I actually tell them, put everything down and say hello to the person beside you. <laughs> you, know, you know, reintroduce yourself to your peer group, and 
it's it it is concerning that uh, we you know educational psychologists say that we're not teaching students important skills like cursive writing or short-term memory skills. I think we're also not teaching them to make friends and connections. When uh, people hear the results of the study, would they naturally assume that seniors might be lonelier than the younger generation? I think a lot of people do. That's why the United Kingdom introduced last year a, a minister of loneliness, which I believe is the only country that actually has a government minister responsible for trying to improve the mental health of their population. And they're focusing a lot on the elderly. They're concerned about people who have outlived their friends, outlived their spouses, and they're trying to get them more integrated into the community because uh, you may have reduced mobility, although you know, the Duke of Edinburgh yesterday was driving around at 97 and got into an accident. Um, he was mobile. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're trying to bring people closer together, but uh, they're actually, uh, according to our data, they're less lonely than are the younger individuals. The 15 to 25-year-olds were lonelier than the 65 to 75-year-olds. And that's a strange pattern because the young people are supposed to be so connected and so attuned to what's going on with everything else and be very mobile, um, but why are they lonelier? So I'm trying to figure out the difference between the two cohorts and why we're seeing differences in loneliness. Is there a way to spot loneliness in people? There is. Um, we, if you're a clinical psychologist, they typically will use direct indicators to find out if the person is showing loneliness or depressive tendencies. We've looked at non-clinical indicators, and so one of the things we found was people who engage in self-deprecating humor, they make fun of themselves, they also tend to be lonelier. Uh, we also find that people who are neurotic, that worry about a lot of things, they perseverate and ruminate, they also tend to be report being lonelier and feeling lonelier, and it could be because they're fixating on negative states. People who are extroverted and outgoing and high in agreeableness, and interestingly, high in conscientiousness, so the people that are punctual, they make it to meetings, they don't let you down, those people actually don't report high degrees of loneliness. And it could be that these are interpersonal behaviors when they're interacting with others. There's, uh, you know, such a, a, a focus these days on mental health and depression and suicide. Do we, do we maybe underestimate the, the loneliness factor in all of that? I think we do, because people don't want to admit to being lonely. If you ask somebody, are you feeling lonely, it's, they're viewing it as a character fault by saying, yes, I'm feeling lonely. I think we need to just discuss it more, bring it, talk it, bring, it, um, bring it out into the open and talk about it so people feel more comfortable saying, I could, you know, spend some, maybe we could spend some time together, do things, and uh, think about uh, the type of interaction that you, would, you need to have from others and try to seek that out. And not be embarrassed asking people. You know, do you want to do something with me? Like, can we go have a coffee together? Uh, something like that, just to help alleviate a sense of isolation. Like, for example, in the business world, 
Uh, companies have tried to improve their work environment for their employees by letting them telecommute. And so they work at home and they don't come into the office, but there are some employees that actually that backfires on them. They're so miserable at home because they miss the interaction of their colleagues. And so they would rather come back into the office. And so, interestingly, some companies have introduced this concept of asking people, you know, do you have enough interaction with people in your work environment? Uh, CBC, for example, I know it's a competitor, but CBC actually has, I was told that they have an interview with their employees and they say, do you have a friend at work? And that's a, that's a good question. Um, does somebody actually have enough social interaction with others in their work environment? Because that's where you're there most of the day. It's, uh, it's really quite interesting. Uh, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. That is Dr. Julie Aiken-Shermer, a researcher at Western University. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to spend a few moments uh, talking about everyone's favorite subject, Donald Trump. Stop me if you've heard this one before. There's been a development that could be bad news for Trump. You hear it so often, it's often rendered almost meaningless. There, there can be a tendency to talk less about Trump because it's a story that just never ends. And I get it. But you know what Trump is? Trump's an absolute train wreck. I'll say this to all the the Trump supporters out there. This is not anti-conservative. Trump isn't conservative. Trump has uh, painted himself as an outsider. People identify that. They identify with him. Uh, I get it. They identify with the criticism against him. They internalize it. So I get why people stick with him, but it's it's not about you. So if you're a Trump fan, uh, you should, though, be worried about this latest development. Uh, For reals. For reals. On Thursday, uh, BuzzFeed released a report saying Trump told his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, to lie to Congress about negotiations to build Trump Tower in Moscow. BuzzFeed cited two unnamed law enforcement officials who were probing the situation. The report said that Trump instructed Cohen to tell Congress that negotiations with Russia ended months earlier than they actually did in order to hide his involvement BuzzFeed says it reached out to the White House and Cohen for comment, but did not hear back. Now, Cohen will be commenting before uh, legislators in a couple weeks. And one of the reasons this is a real problem is because Trump's pick for attorney general said that if the president were to coach someone to falsely testify, that would be a crime. Those are the words that William Barr used during his confirmation hearing Tuesday he was asked by senators what he considers to be obstruction of justice. Coaching someone to lie under oath is called subordination of perjury. And according to Trump's own attorney general pick, that is obstruction of justice. The penalty for this could range from a fine to up to 10 years in prison. So with that in mind, I want to play this back and forth between Senator Amy Klobuchar and William Barr from earlier this week. She just so happened to ask him about the president and obstruction of justice. 
in your memo, uh, you talked about the, the Comey decision, and you talked about obstruction of justice, and you already went over that, which I appreciate. You wrote on page one that a president persuading a person to commit perjury would be obstruction. Is that right? That, y yes. Okay. Or any, any, well, you know, any person who persuades any person. another to, yeah. Okay. You also said that a president or any person convincing a witness to change testimony would be obstruction. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And on page two, you said that a president deliberately impairing the integrity or availability of evidence would be an instruction. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And um, so what if a president told a witness not to cooperate with an investigation or hinted at a pardon? You know, I... I, I I'd have to know the specific. I'd have to know the specific facts. Okay, and you wrote on page one that if a president knowingly destroys or alters evidence, that would be obstruction. Yes. Okay. Um, so, what if a president drafted a misleading statement to conceal the purpose of a meeting? Would that be obstruction? Again, you know, I'd, ha I'd have to know the. I'd have to know the specifics. So that was from earlier this week. Now, uh, Amy Klobuchar is a Democrat. Lindsey Graham, a Republican, asked similar questions. Don't have audio of that, but he asked if there was some reason to believe that the president tried to coach somebody not to testify or to testify falsely, that could be obstruction of justice. Barr replied, yes, under an obstruction statute, yes. He was also asked that question by a couple different senators. So this is where it starts to get tricky. And one of the, the things for, for Trump is I just don't know what it's like to be him right now. You've got multiple different possible potential investigations. There's the Mueller investigation, which New York Times was reporting about a week ago, has two different facets to it. One that was the original investigation and one that was he inherited from the FBI that's from 2017 on. There is the Michael Cohen situation, which is done at the state level, which could bring its own set of problems. And then there's Michael Cohen parts here with him potentially, as the allegations will be made, that Trump coached Cohen to lie. And then Cohen's going to be speaking before Congress in a few weeks. It is uh, a never-ending story, and I haven't I haven't been following along with uh, Twitter pretty much all day today. But you got to think that uh, this is going to uh, get a rise out of the president. And there's you know there's stories. Just I was just checking online. There's there's food lines for furloughed uh, workers right now, which is just you know, you're the United States. And government employees should not need to line up for food because of a government shutdown. But that is the case, the longest in U.S. history. And there's even, you know, impacts where it, the government shutdown in the United States impacts Canada. One small way is just food inspection. We get a lot of food from the United States. Food inspections are less than while this uh, partial government shutdown is, is on and we just all got over that uh, romaine lettuce E. coli scare. We don't need something similar to be happening. So uh, I hope our uh, friends in the United States who are currently furloughed are back and uh, that shutdown ends. But 
it is just an insane world right now. When Donald Trump's own lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, is talking about how collusion may have happened between Trump's campaign and Russia, everything's on the table. That's Trump's own lawyer saying it. Of course, denied Trump would have known anything about it had it happened, but the whole thing is just remarkable. Uh, we need to pause. We come back. More of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Max Eisen, to Randy Walker, to Rob Cunningham, Hugh uh, Garvan, to Randy Warden, Danny Chang, and Dr. Julie Aiken Shermer for coming on the show. Thanks to Jacqueline Carbone for her work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip of Anderson Cooper getting a little tongue-tied. Have a great day. We'll be back with you on Monday at 1 o'clock. Retired uh, Army Lieutenant uh, General, uh, Lieutenant, oh, I'm scared. Well, um, General, are we having Hurtling joining us?